Well, good evening. Good evening and Merry Christmas. As we rapidly approach Christmas weekend and Christmas Sunday, a reminder that, yes, we will, in fact, be here on Sunday. I know some churches have chosen to have their services on Saturday, and then they'll be closed for Christmas Day. We, we're going to have our service on Sunday, uh, so hope you'll join us. We'll have a message from the Word from the book of Isaiah. So we'll look forward to that. But this evening we are in the book of Nehemiah, so you can turn there in chapter 9. We're going to take a few minutes this evening to to just, we're going to learn a little bit about the children of Israel, and we're going to learn about a commitment they made to serve the Lord. But as we do that, what's more important perhaps is for us to reaffirm our commitment to serve the Lord. You know, there comes a point Every day, every single day, when we have to reaffirm our commitment to serve God. It can be in the morning, it can be the night before the day, but there has to be, I think, every day, a decision for Christ. Paul said he he died daily. So each day he made a decision to die to self and live for Christ. Jesus talked about picking up our cross daily, following him. And I think. I want to encourage you as we go into the new year especially that maybe even if it's like literally 10 seconds that you at some point, for me I I like to do that in the morning, uh, get up right before I make my breakfast, which is an hour-long process. I'm like a hobbit. I have several breakfasts, you know, 11Zs, second breakfast. I take some time in the morning and I have my breakfast. During that time I'm preparing my day. But the first thing I do is, is this going to be, I ask myself a question. I say, is this going to be a day when I serve you, Lord? Because let's face it, there are days when we don't. There are days when we outright not only don't serve him, we defy him. So I'm going to encourage you, just ask yourself that question and answer it in the affirmative. Yes, this day in my house, we're going to serve the Lord. So as we get ready to get into this chapter, that's really the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is this, that we want to look and see that we need to make that same commitment that the Israelites made at a certain point in their history in chapter 9. But let's open in prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you that in chapter 9 and 10 of this book, we see that there's a work that you desire to do in each and every one of us, a work of remembrance remembering all that you've done for us, even in our failures, but moving beyond them and moving into a place of commitment to serve you with our lives, with all of our hearts, minds, soul, and strength. Lord, help us this evening for being in your word. Bless our children and their last Calvary Kids of the Year to have a great night tonight, but help us up here to just have an opportunity to really set our hearts aright with you before this holiday season gets any busier. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, the Levites are about, we're going to read about this, they're they're about to read the book of the law of the Lord their God to the people of Israel. And you know what I found? That when you read the word of God, either yourself or you read it to someone else, it changes things. It changes hearts. There's no way to say it better than that. When you read the word of God or the word of God is taught to you or read to you, it changes you. You can't be in the word of God and not be changed. So many times we say, oh, I just don't know how to change. I I just need to find change. We're always looking for change. But you know something? Change, like faith, comes from hearing or reading the Word of God. So as we look at this, let's read just the first five verses. Actually, not even all of the first five verses of chapter 9. Here we see the people 
came together to confess their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. And here we read that on the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. And those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners and they stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and worshiping the Lord their God, standing on the stairs with the Levites, and it goes on to give their names, who called with loud voices to the Lord their God and the Levites, and it repeats their names, said, stand up and praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. We used to sing a song when I was at Harvest, from everlasting to everlasting. From everlasting to everlasting, praise ye the Lord. And that really is the sentiment there. That's pretty much what's being said. Forever, over and over again, always praise the Lord. They had come together in unity to worship the Lord as one body, as we saw in chapter 8. In verses 1 through 12, we saw they gathered on the first day of the seventh month, which was the Feast of Trumpets, or Rosh Hashanah, and they Then celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with great joy in chapter 8, verses 16 through 18. We saw this last week. They gathered on the 15th day of the seventh month for seven days and even the following day. And now they gathered two days later on the 24th day of the seventh month specifically to repent of their sins. Now the Day of Atonement, I believe, is on the 10th day of that same month. It actually happens between the holidays. But for whatever reason... They reached a place on the 24th day of the seventh month to repent of their sins. A moment for them to reflect and and, and acknowledge the things that needed to change. That's what should happen in each of our hearts. Not just at the end of the year, each and every day. Each and every day we should be asking those questions. And if you answer the question properly and admit and confess your sin, you'll find you stand a pretty good chance of serving the Lord that day. But if you hide it and pretend it's not happening and go through your life thinking, well, you know, a little sin never killed anybody except that it does. Then, you know, you may not end up serving the Lord that day. And I I pray that you would, like I said, each of us, each and every day, make that commitment. Now, when they gathered to repent of their sins, they fasted. That's a sign of repentance. They wore sackcloth. That is uncomfortable clothing. So that every time they itched, like imagine wearing a a wool sweater without a t-shirt, you know? Like every time they, they, they itched, it reminded them that they were in repentance. They didn't want to get comfortable. You know, part of the problem with Christians is we just get too darn comfortable. And sometimes the Jews would do this to remind themselves so they wouldn't become too comfortable in their sin. It was a reminder. They were hungry. It reminded them that they were repenting. They got uncomfortable in, the, in their clothing. It reminded them that they were in repentance. Like you might wear black to a funeral to remind you that you're mourning. It's the same idea. They even put dust on their heads to let everyone around them know that they were mourning, that they were repenting. They had separated themselves from all the foreigners who practiced uh, their own religions and, and really were not Jews. They confessed their own sins, even the wickedness of their ancestors. And what did they do? They read from the book of the law of the Lord their God. They did that for a quarter of the day. And the other quarter of the day, they confessed their sins and worshiped the Lord their God for a quarter of that day. So, so half a day spent repenting and worshiping. It's a good way to spend a day. 
If you factor in another third of the day for sleeping, maybe you have a little time for something else. But that's, that's about it. That's what they did. And then the Levites led the people in praise of the Lord their God. Now, this is a lengthy section. It requires very little, if any, explanation. But as we read through this, listen, it is a beautiful recounting in history, in prayer form, of their praise to God and all that God had done for them throughout their history. It's always a good thing to stop, not just at the end of the year, but every day, and acknowledge the things that God has done in your life. Remember the things that God has brought you through. Some people who don't have such a good memory will journal. They'll write them down. This is a good time of year to go back and read what happened this year and how God worked in your life. For those of you with a pretty good memory, then just stop and think about what it is that God has done. Here's what the Levites led them in prayer with, and we begin in verse 5, second part of verse 5. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who brought Abram, and uh, who, who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you and you made a covenant with him to give his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials. And all the people of his land, for you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on their way, on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai, you spoke to them from heaven, you gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, uh, decrees and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and to take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they... Our forefathers became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. By day the pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths and gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Sihon, king of Heshbon, 
and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their sons as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land that you told their fathers to enter and possess. Their sons went in and took possession of the land. You subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. You handed the Canaanites over to them, along with their kings and the peoples of their land, or of the land, to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land, and they took possession of the houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you, and put your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who had admonished them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies, so you handed them over to their enemies, who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you, and from heaven you heard them. And in your great compassion you gave them deliverers, or judges, who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, and again, they, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven. And in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. You warned them to return to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances by which a man will live if he obeys them. Stubbornly they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked and refused to listen. For many years you were patient with them. By your spirit you admonished them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention, so you handed them over to the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. What a beautiful prayer. It doesn't require much in the way of explanation. But as we read that, we get a survey of the entire history of Israel. Their ups, their downs, their successes and their failures. Sounds like our lives, really. Ups and downs, successes and failures. In this prayer, they praised, they started, by the way, praising the glorious name of the Lord who alone is Jehovah, the creator of all things. Good place to start. He who chose Abram and gave his descendants the promised land. He who delivered them from Egypt and led them through the desert. He who gave them the law through Moses and provided for all their needs. I like when it says, you know, their clothes didn't wear out. Their feet didn't become swollen. That is to say, their shoes didn't even wear out. God sustained them. And he who forgave them when they rebelled against him in the desert loved them. The Lord And the Lord led them and provided for their needs for 40 years in the desert, leading them into the promised land, giving them victory over their enemies, handing them over to their enemies in their rebellion, and delivering them when they cried out, patiently warning them in their disobedience. He even mercifully brought them into exile. So they made their way into exile when God had to chastise them. And he was merciful. And he patiently warned them before he did so. So God was so good to them. That's the point. Is God good to you? Say amen. He's good to us in our failures. And there's some words in there that I love, like when it, when it says there, in, in around verse 17, I believe, it says, uh, you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Hope that's how you see God. As it ends this section, it says, For you are a gracious and merciful God. 
See, even in all the judgment and the difficulty they endured, they understood that truth about the nature and the love of God. And we need to remember that always. Then the next thing that happens after they, the Levites led the people in praise, then the Levites led the people in confession of their sins to the Lord their God. And this is a shorter section, but it's equally beautiful. For we read in verse 32, Now therefore, O our God, the great and mighty and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come upon us, upon our kings and leaders, upon our priests and prophets, upon our fathers and all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you have been just. You have acted faithfully while we did wrong. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the warnings you gave them, even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them. In the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. Verse 36, but see, we are slaves today. Slaves in the land you gave our forefathers so they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. I mean, we could pray that today as a nation. Verbatim. Beautiful prayer of repentance. They, they understood these two things. First, they were to blame for all their hardships while he had been just and faithful to them. They were to blame. See, when we in our country stop asking for someone to fix us, reparations and whatnot, when we stop looking to everyone else and look to God and admit that we failed to serve God as a nation, when we come to him, that's when things will get better, and not until then. Because why should they get better? The difficulties are helping people to realize their need for God. And until they do, things really shouldn't get better. I pray they will get better because I pray people will turn to God. But that's what was happening here. And that's why God was working among them. They were to blame for their slavery to foreign kings and for their great distress. And that is always true. If we as God's people are going through times of great distress and difficulty and hardship, it's at that moment where we need to take inventory and say, Lord, what am I doing wrong? What is it that I have allowed in my life or not allowed in my life that has brought me so low? I need you. I repent of my sins and I ask for forgiveness. That is the beginning of success in the rest of your life, especially your spiritual life. And they become a beautiful picture of that. You don't really need to add much to that. It's a lot of reading on my part. But what that says in total is so much. And so what a beautiful meditation. I encourage you, if you want, to read over it again on your own. But that is a beautiful, beautiful lesson in those words. Now, the people of Israel, we talked about the Levites. They were reading the book of the law and praying and leading the people in repentance. But the people of Israel decided to respond to the word of God. And they responded by making a binding agreement. That is a a commitment to follow the Lord, the law of the Lord God given through Moses. That is, they looked at the Word of God, they essentially read the Word of God, and familiarizing themselves with their history, they came to this conclusion. We're going to agree, we're going to commit ourselves to follow after you. Listen, that is a wonderful moment to find yourself spiritually. You know, I have moments like that, sometimes every day, sometimes a couple times a week, 
sometimes throughout the year, where I just feel like, I don't know, could it, it's not something I can orchestrate. But it always comes when I read the Word of God. I read the Word of God a lot as a pastor, but there are times where I was reading something this week. It was the Straight Path Ministry uh, newsletter that was sitting on my desk. It just came out like a week or so ago, and I always read these newsletters, or at least look at them for a little bit, and I read the entire thing, and Pastor Joe was just encouraging uh, anyone who read this newsletter, and I encourage you to do so, to, to really serve the Lord. Commit yourself to serve the Lord with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And it brought me back to this idea of making this level of commitment, and in my heart, I said, you know, Lord, I'm not where I need to be. I mean, I can grow closer to you. There are areas of my life that are not surrendered to you, so I just I didn't even really think much about it, but I said, you know, I, I, I want to serve you with my heart, mind, soul, and strength. I, I want to be committed to you, especially as we approach this Christmas season and the new year. I want to be more and more committed to serving you in my heart. I can serve you with my life and fake it, but I want to serve you with my heart, with my mind, with my soul. And I didn't really think much of it. I was done reading the news, newsletter, so I put it down. And it was interesting, the rest of that day was completely different. Something was different, I was different, and it was just a simple commitment. And the Holy Spirit, I think, just took advantage of the opportunity that I gave him, God, the Holy Spirit, to surrender my heart in a way that maybe I needed to that day that I hadn't recently. And everything changed. Everything looked different. Everything felt different. The propensity towards sin and anger and selfishness subsided. And I've been having a good week. It wasn't so good up to that point. But fortunately, I think this was Monday. (laughs) So maybe half my Monday, not so good. The rest of the Monday was glorious. And Tuesday's been great. Today's Wednesday, right? So far, so good. Faith comes by hearing the word of God, being in the word of God, taking the lessons of the word of God, applying your heart to them and allowing God to speak to you and then speaking to him from what you've received will change you. It will transform you. It will renew your mind and your life. And so I strongly encourage you to do so. The people responded in that way. They made a binding agreement. I want to read a few verses in, uh, let's see, we're, we're actually in the last verse of chapter 9. We read there, in view of all of this, that is everything we just read, we are making a binding agreement, the people said, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our, our Levites, and our priests are fixing their seals to it. We're making a public commitment. Like saying, I do at the altar. You're making a public commitment, a vow, an oath to do what you want to do and need to do and should do. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with making those commitments each and every day. But they made this commitment and they meant it with their hearts. This was a binding agreement made by the people of Israel, sealed by their leaders, an agreement that was put in writing and then sealed by the leaders, the Levites and the priests. So everyone knew what the commitment was. Nehemiah, the governor, we see, sealed the agreement. Look at verse 1. Those who sealed it were Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah. Then it lists the priests. Then it lists the Levites. Then it lists the leaders of the people. And we get down to verse 27. We'll talk more about this chapter in just a minute, but just stopping there, the priests sealed the agreement. The Levites sealed the agreement. The leaders of the people signed the agreement, but the people made the commitment. And I encourage you to make that level of commitment to the Lord even today, even tonight, even the rest of this week and into the new year. And the people agreed to follow the law of God given through Moses 
and to obey carefully the law of the Lord. They were going to do their best. And so we read in verses 28 and 29, the rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand, all these now join their brothers, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse, which is the way they would make an oath. They would make an oath and a vow, and they would say, well, if I violate the vow, may these terrible things happen to me. And you think, that sounds awful. But when I was a kid, we used to say, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Remember that? That's kind of the same idea. If, if we don't really mean what we say, may something terrible happen to me. It's very dramatic, it's very Jewish, but it is definitely what they would do. So they bound themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of, of, the, of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. That is their commitment. And I've already encouraged you to do likewise. Now, the people promised also to remain separate. And this is a great challenge, especially going into the holiday season. But just living in an affluent society a society that is all about things and possessions, we need to be reminded of this. We need to keep ourselves separate. They promised to remain separate and to provide for the temple, the priests and the Levites. That is to to invest in their religion, invest in their temple, invest in the things of, of the spiritual life, not so much be distracted by the things of the earthly life. Now, for us, that translates into being separate from the world system. Not from the world, but not from the people in the world, but the things of the world. I'm around a lot of worldly people. These days, more than I have been in the past, I I spend a considerable amount of time with worldly people who use foul language and don't always say the things I want them to say because I'm seeking to influence them for the gospel. And I'm willing to endure a a certain level of unenjoyable talk and language in order to be able to have the opportunity, earn the opportunity to share what it is to be a Christian through my life, through my words, through my love. But I have to admit, sometimes I do have to just separate myself from it because it's too much. Sometimes I I hear the things they're talking about, I walk away. I don't want to be a part of the conversation. I ignore it. I don't get involved in it when those things happen. We have to be careful. You can't separate yourself from the people of the world because you need to reach the world for Christ. But you can separate yourself from the behaviors of those people of the world. So sometimes they engage in things. We're not going to judge them. They don't know Christ. But we can't be partakers with them of their sins. We have to, as the scripture says, come out from among them and be separate. So there are times at work where you have to say, I'm sorry. I'm I'm just not going to participate in that. And you can do it lovingly. You don't have to be a judging kind of person. There are times when your family will get involved in certain behaviors, especially, you know, if your family doesn't know Christ, and you have to maybe not be a part of that. I I can think of, you know, going to a wedding, right? And I always used to dread, as a young Christian especially, going to a a wedding that had an open bar because it almost always meant things were going to get out of hand. Free drinks? Think about it, you know? So... I can remember I'd go to family weddings and friends' weddings, and when there was an open bar, I always said, oh boy, here we go, you know. I had stopped drinking a long time ago, very long time ago. I've lost track. I think it was maybe 87, maybe even sooner. Maybe it was 86, actually. So, uh, you know, for me, that's not really a temptation, but I don't want to be a part of that. 
There's nothing attractive about that to me anymore. And, and honestly, there are many times where I'm walking this line and something happens and I find myself going the opposite direction because I, I just can't be a part of this. So I can't tell you as a Christian what things you can and can't be a part of, but I can say what the Scripture says, that there are things that you need to separate yourself from. Worldly behavior is one of them. And I know that that's what they were talking about here when they, when they talked about separating themselves from the world and committing themselves to the spiritual life of their culture, which is worship at the temple, providing for the priests, their religion. And, and you know, it's funny because if you're a person that struggles with sin, you find yourself in bars and in places where sin happens, and you're spending time in those places, and then you're surprised on, you know, Saturday morning or Sunday morning why you've been committing sin all weekend. Can I just alert you to this? You don't belong there. And, you know, one of the things that's great about church activities is our spirits want to be in the presence of the Lord. Where two or three are gathered, the Lord is in our midst, right? So your spirit wants to be in those places. And fortunately, while we don't have something going on every single day here at Calvary Chapel, there are things happening throughout the week. There are opportunities for fellowship online and offline. You know, you you can find a way into God's presence each and every day yourself. But many of those days, you don't need to be by yourself. How strongly committed are we to living a life separate from the world? That's the only question we need to ask. Because if you're truly committed to it, there's plenty of support here for that. But if you're playing with sin and living with one foot in the world and one foot out, then you can't pray these prayers that the Levites asked them to pray or that the people committed to. You have to come out from among them and be you separate. There, especially now in this dark world, there is no time for playing games. There is no time for pretending to be something you're not. So I'm not being harsh. I'm being direct because I want you to know we need more than ever to be living uprightly before God to his glory. Amen? All right. That's how I feel, you know, especially right now. I just feel very strongly about that. And I want to continue to feel strongly about that and encourage you in that way. Well, as we read, I'm going to read verses 30 through 39. Uh, a little bit more reading. I'm getting my exercise today. Uh, we'll just uh, wrap it up here with verses 30 through 39, rest of chapter 10, and then we'll be done. Here's their commitment. Listen to the words. See if this agrees with your heart. You can pray along with these words. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, We will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and we'll cancel all debts. Now, this was according to their their law, but these are principles we'll talk about in a minute that we can practice today. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God, for the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths, new moon festivals, and appointed feasts for the holy offerings, for sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the duties of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. 
As it is also written in the law, we will bring our firstborn, the firstborn of our sons, and of our cattle, and of our herds, and of our flocks, to the house of our God, to the priests ministering to there. Again, according to the law, the animals were sacrificed, the sons were purchased back. So it was more of a a donation that was made uh, in that way. Uh, Let's see, um, verse 37. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all our trees, and of our new wine and oil, and we will bring a tithe, or a tenth, of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes, that's for accountability, and the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God, to the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and oil to the storerooms where the articles for the sanctuary are kept and where the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and the singers stay. We will not neglect the house of our God. Just one point on that. Someone might look at this and say, oh, what a great message to speak on year-end giving. No. This has nothing to do with that. This has to do with serving the Lord with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. These are just the things they were supposed to do all the time. All right? But when it says, we will not neglect the house of our God, I want to remind you what the Scripture says in the New Testament. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the house of God. It might surprise you to know that the only reason this building is considered a house of worship is because we are here. The minute we leave, it is no longer a sacred place. I mean, it's a place that's made sacred so we can worship, but the reason it's a holy place is because we're here. Because we are the temple of his spirit. The nous, the inner sanctum, the holy of holies, It's we. We bring the sacredness to a building. So it doesn't have to be a building because where two or three are gathered, he's in the midst. So when we say we will not neglect the house of God, what we're really saying is we're not going to neglect the fact that we are God's temple, the place where his spirit dwells. We're going to make the investment in our spiritual life, and that's how it relates to us today. For them, they were not the temple of the spirit. The temple of the spirit was the house of God. It was external to them. To us, it's internal since the day of Pentecost. It's different. But then it was as simple as this. You took care of the place of worship, which was a physical place. For us, it's a spiritual place that manifests itself uh, physically when we come together to worship. Does that make sense? Principle's the same. Don't neglect your spiritual life. Too many of us do to our own detriment and downfall. Make the investments. We talk about making investments in the market, making investments in our lives, in our education, in our families. Make at least that much investment in your spiritual life. There's so many ways you can do that. Let's talk about the principles here. We saw as we read that, that they, they promised not to intermarry with the surrounding peoples. That is, they didn't connect themselves to worldliness and people who live that way. They could love on them, they could share with them, but they were not to be connected or unequally yoked to unbelievers in any way, in business, in marriage. Think about it. That's a good one. Uh, They promised to keep the Sabbath day, holy days, and the Sabbath year 
holy. So, so that, that was something that was important according to the law. But those principles, the Sabbath day is a day of rest and service to God. That is worship, not like action as much as in God's presence. Holy days are days where we honor God. And Sabbath year, this is interesting. Every seventh year, they would let their land rest. But it wasn't because, just because they couldn't continue to farm their land, which is detrimental to the soil. It was to give them a seventh year off. How would you like it if your boss said, every seven years you get a whole year off? How does that sound? Pretty good, right? Nobody's going to offer you that, by the way. Nobody. But every seven years, you get a year off. The idea in this agrarian society was you could trust God, that he would provide so much for you for six years that you'd have enough that in the seventh year you just trusted God and he would take care of you. Is that how you live your life? Or are you looking for every minute to amass as much as you can because you don't want to have to trust God with your finances or your resources? No, do what you need to do. Learn to take a day off. Oh, but a pastor, I need to work. No, you don't. You need to trust God. I'm not saying you need to take a whole year off. That's not the way it works for us. But the principle is the same. People killing themselves to make money when they really need to stop short of all the time working and say, I'm going to trust God. I can take a day to go to church. I can take a day off of rest, be with my family, and not have to work, you know, 18 million hours this next year. It's a great principle. Also, they promise to provide the finances for the service of the temple. That is, invest in their religious and spiritual life. They promise to provide the wood for the altar, the first fruits of their crops, and the trees um, for their temple. Uh, They promise to bring their firstborn sons, which is a way of honoring God for blessing them, their cattle, their herds, their flock, give them to the priests. The first of their ground meal, their grain, their fruit, their new wine, their oil to the priest. This is what kept the whole thing going. You know, if tomorrow each and every one of us decided, ah, you know what, we're not going to support the ministry that we're you know, part of, the church, outreach ministry, whatever. We're just not going to support it anymore. Don't be surprised when you show up at the door and it's locked. I mean, that's how it works, right? We invest in the work of God so that we can be recipients of God's blessings. And that's all I'll say about that. They promised to bring a tenth of their crops to the Levites in their towns. That's how the Levites got paid. And then you might say, well, how did the priests get paid? Well, the Levites took a tenth of what they received from the people and gave that to the priests. They promised to bring the contributions of grain, new wine, and oil to the temple storerooms. They promised not to neglect the temple. Wonderful promises, which sometimes they kept. But this is a, a chapter or two about promises and oaths and commitment. A binding commitment to God. The best we can do is make the commitment, and when we fail to keep the commitment, ask God for forgiveness, confess our sins, and recommit. That, by the way, is called day after day following the Lord. That's what it looks like. The victory isn't so much that you get a string of days where you do everything perfect. The victory is that each and every day you start again. His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, right? You start every day and you say, this is, I'm going to serve you today. And when you fail, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm going to serve you the rest of this day, and I'm going to serve you tomorrow. And you just keep going. Victory is in getting back up again and not staying down. A couple last thoughts as we close. You know, the people made sincere promises, sincere promises to the Lord. Promises to obey. The people obeyed God's word after they heard it. And brothers and sisters, as I've said already, faith comes from hearing God's word. But obedience? Obedience proves that you were listening. 
also promises to be pure. They promised to live lives that were separate from the world. But purity requires separation. You can't be pure and not separate. The word holy means separate. And the Bible says, be holy as I am holy. Peter quotes that. That's what God says to his people. Not just promises to obey, not just promises to be pure, but promises to honor God. They promise to honor God by living according to his word. And in order to do that, they need to study God's word, right? Honoring God is simply putting God and his word first. Right? Putting God's word first. Seek ye the kingdom of God. and his, uh, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Thank you. A lot of reading tonight. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. So, That's the idea of honoring God. But then trusting God. We talked a little bit about that too. They promised to trust in God's provision for their lives. Listen, things have been tight for all of us this year. Me too. You know, I had a whole bunch of repairs and things I, some planned to do and some didn't plan to do and not a whole lot of extra money in my budget this year. In fact, I had to tap some of my savings because there were things that just needed to be done. That's how it, that's why they're there. But honestly, the minute I start panicking and thinking, oh, now I'm going to get a second job. You know, I was a, I'll pass through during the day and I'll tend bar at night. That's a joke. No, no offense to anybody that quote-unquote tends bar, but probably a very dangerous position for most people. I know I couldn't do it. Well, they call it a mixologist. <laughs> no, I'm not taking that job. You won't see that on my LinkedIn. I don't even have one. But. So I'm being a little silly, but I'm trying to keep your attention. Trusting God means exactly that. Trusting God for his provision. Faith is not an action. It's an inaction. Faith is not an action. It's an inaction. It's just trusting God. Not taking matters in your own hands. It's resting in God's faithfulness. Do you believe God is faithful? Say amen. He's faithful. You can trust him. Oh, pastor, I got eight jobs. That's why I can't be here on Sunday. Promises not only to trust God, but promises to be responsible. What does it mean to be responsible? Well, they promise to provide for the house of God. For us, responsibility is recognizing God's call on your life and fulfilling your purpose. What is your purpose? Well, the Westminster Confession would tell us something about our chief purpose being to worship God, to know God, and to make him known. I think that's very accurate. I may not be in a direct quote, but it's basically it. You know, fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. That's what the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes, who we believe is Solomon, said. Here's the conclusion of the matter. You want to know what the conclusion of the matter is? Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. That's your responsibility. And when you fail, you ask for forgiveness. But are you even trying? Are we even trying to live lives that are obedient, pure, honoring of God, trusting God, and responsible to God? That's the reformation that Nehemiah brought to Judea. And that, brothers and sisters, is the reformation that we each of us need in our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, coming to the end of this year, we thank you for a message like this. It tunes us up helps us to set things right. Lord, we know in our hearts that we fail to do these things so often 
We simply ask that you'd help us now, today, not even after the end of the year, today, to commit ourselves with a binding agreement to fear you, to keep your commandments, to honor you with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.